I'd like to invite your attention once again this morning to the fourth chapter of Ephesians, and specifically verses 25 through 32. Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 32, where the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And because of your death, Lord Jesus, we can go from being thieves givers from having a foul mouth to a mouth that builds up we praise you amen a helpful way of understanding Paul's words is to view them as the working out of the gospel if you remember Paul wrote to the Christians in Philippi Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And one way that we work out our own salvation is by putting away falsehood and beginning to speak the truth. We work out our own salvation by being angry for the right reasons and yet not sinning. We work out our own salvation by no longer stealing and beginning to work hard so that we can give to others. We work out our own salvation as we make sure that no corrupt talk comes out of our mouths and that the words that do come out of our mouths are used to build others up. That do we make sure that they are just right for the occasion. God saves us to change us, to conform us into the image of Jesus, which means that God works with us to remove everything from our lives that hinders us from being like Christ. As I said uh, two weeks ago, I think it was, this is a passage of opportunity is a passage of encouragement. Paul writes and says, here are some sins that you may still be struggling with, but through the power of the gospel and through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, here is what you can do. Here is what you may be, but here is what you will be. Here's what your Heavenly Father 
wants you to be. I told Todd before the service, these verses have been very, very convicting to me. And I'm glad. Say, why are you happy about this? Because the Holy Spirit's doing what? Sanctifying me, making me like Christ. Now, perhaps you read Paul's words and you become discouraged and hopeless. That may mean that you need to go back and reread the opening chapters of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And you want to reread it so that you can remind yourself once again of all that God has done for you through Christ. You need to go back and remind yourself of who you are in Christ and what you now possess since you are in Christ. And if these words discourage you, please do not let your discouragement drive you away from Jesus. Let your discouragement drive you to Jesus. Let them drive you to your knees and to cry out to God for his help, and he will help. Discouragement many times comes from our struggle with sin. But never, ever forget this as a Christian. Our struggle with sin is one of the ways that we make our calling and election sure. There is, never forget this as well, memorable morning, amen? There is joy of assurance to be found in our struggle with sin. And those, these words of Paul are not meant to discourage us. They are meant to encourage us that real, meaningful change is possible. Now, the possibility exists that there's somebody here this morning who's not struggling against sin. In fact, you have no interest in making sure that you're a truthful person. Or that you're an honest person. You really don't care what your speech is like. Then I want to hold out before you that even though you may think that you are a believer, even though you may think that you are in Christ, you may think that you're a Christian, the possibility is very real that you are not a believer, that you are not a Christian, that you are not in Christ. I honestly... I highly encourage you to honestly examine yourself. To hold yourself up to the mirror of Scripture. If you examine yourselves according to the Scriptures and you fail the test, I implore you not to delay coming to Christ. And to do that even this morning. Before you even leave this building, see me or another believer here. And talk about coming to Christ. Well, Paul continues his pattern of first giving a negative, meaning he gives us instruction and in telling us what not to do, what we need to stop doing. And then he gives us the positive, in other words, what we need to start doing. So in verse 28, what is the first negative? Well, Paul says, you must no longer steal. 
You must no longer acquire anything, regardless of what it is, be it large or small, irrespective of the value. It may be very valuable or it may be totally worthless. You must no longer take whatever you want from whomever you want. Literally, he says, don't be a stealer. Pittsburgh or otherwise, amen. And we may read Paul's words here and think, well, I've got nothing to pay attention to here. I'm as honest as the day is long. I'm not a thief. But keep this in mind. Stealing has always been a problem for us. Why do you think God wrote the Eighth Commandment? Say, what's the Eighth Commandment? You shall not what? Steal. You shall not steal. And why do we steal? You know why we steal? Because we're selfish. We're selfish. There's a multitude of ways that we can steal. Sherry had this week... uh, a bank robber in a branch. What was his intent? It wouldn't say happy Thanksgiving. No. He wanted to money the easy way. He was selfish. He didn't want to work for it. He was just going to take it. And by the way, he didn't rob her branch. He went down the road and robbed another branch, I guess. I don't know, but that's what he did. And there's some stealing that will put you in prison. And most of us know to stay away from that kind of stealing. But there are many ways of stealing that won't put you in the hooskow, but they are still sinful. They are still stealing. They are just as wrong as the guy who gets locked up in the clink for robbing a bank. For instance, you can steal time from your employer by either wasting it or not giving a full day's work. You can steal from the government by cheating on your taxes. For instance, uh, another way you can steal is you go out, uh, let's say, for uh, lunch this afternoon, and uh, the cashier gives you back uh, $10 too much, and you, you know it, and you stick it in your pocket and go on your merry way. You've just stolen $10. You didn't put a gun in her face and say, give me 10 bucks, but you took the 10 bucks that didn't belong to you. You can steal from your neighbor. How about this? You can steal from your neighbor when you don't love them just like you love yourself. James Montgomery Boyce says we steal from an employer when we do not give the best work of which we are capable of or when we waste time. He also said, now listen carefully to this, we steal from God when we fail to worship him as we ought or when we set our own interest before his legitimate interest. We steal from him when we fail to honor him by our lives or fail to tell others of his love. As I read that and thought about that, I thought to myself, this is the most serious and perhaps the most common way of stealing for those who are Christians. If you and I would recognize that coming to church and engaging in half-hearted worship was stealing, would that change the way that we approach Sunday morning? And would that change the way we approach the rest of our lives? Listen, I speak specifically to men because men are more guilty of this. For some reason, men don't like to sing. I personally like to sing. I'm not a good singer. never claimed to be a good singer, but I like to sing. Deal with it. And when we come and we sit there and we got a mopey look on our face and we won't sing, we won't open our mouths, 
We're stealing what God rightly deserves. He deserves to be praised. He deserves to be worshipped. Stand in front of Joe this morning. I can hear Joe singing out. That's wonderful. Everybody should do that. See? So be careful when we come to worship that we don't do it half-heartedly and steal from the Lord what is rightly his. Finally, Pastor Boyce wrote this. We steal from ourselves when we waste the time, talents, or resources that God has entrusted to us. Now let me ask you a question. It may be a little painful. Do you strive to be the best you can be every day? Or are you half-hearted in your effort and your production? Regardless of what line of work you're in, regardless of what you're doing, do you strive to be the best that you can be every day? Not the best in the company, not the best in your field, but the best that you can be. I heard an interview years ago. I think Phil Johnson was interviewing John MacArthur. And during the interview, John MacArthur said that he was never satisfied with a sermon. Why well, about choked? I thought if there's anybody who should be satisfied with the sermon, it would be John MacArthur. He said, no, I always feel like there was more I could have done. There was more I should have studied. Now think about that. Here's a man literally known around the world for his preaching. Could it be that the reason he's known around the world for his preaching is because he's driven to do his very best to make sure that God is rightly glorified and recognized in every sermon he preaches. And you and I, regardless of what field of endeavor we are in, we should be driven by that same desire, the glory of God, that motivates us to do the very best that we can be, whatever God has given us to do. Do you strive to do your best with whatever whatever gifts and talents God has given to you. So that's the negative. Don't steal. Don't steal from others. Don't steal from God. Don't steal from your employer, your neighbor, and don't steal from yourself. So the flip side, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Now, it's not enough to simply stop stealing. We must go on To do what? Honest work. We need to labor with our own hands. And the word labor here means to engage in wearisome work, literally to work hard to the point of toil, to exhaust yourself in your work. To give a full day's pay, uh, uh, work for a full day's pay. The Christian should never be guilty of just doing the minimum to just get by. The Christian ought to be known as one of the hardest workers, if not the hardest worker in the department. The Christian should set the example of doing the very best, squeezing out every last drop of their God-given potential. Again, I'm not saying that you have to be the absolute best in everything you do, but with the gifts and the talents and the potential that God has given you, are you maximizing those things? In the Bible, as we know, assigns a high value to work. And the Christian should have the highest work ethic over any other unbeliever. So, well, why should we work so hard? 
Why should we go to all this trouble? Why should we labor to the point where we're wearing ourselves out? What's the why here? Well, the world is constantly telling us to work hard so we can get ahead. We need to work hard because through hard work comes success. We need to work hard because if you work hard, you can have not just what you need, but what you want. And you know what? All of those statements are true. You can get ahead and enjoy a measure of success if you work hard. But the why is where Christianity separates from the culture. The Christian is to work hard so that they will have something to share with those who are in need. Not to hoard it for themselves. Not to spend it all on themselves. Not to get all the toys their heart desires. The good doctor writes, we are to show that the supreme object in our lives is not enjoyment and pleasure. Now that runs <laughs> counter to our culture, doesn't it? It is not to have a life of ease and then to set up committees to know how to employ our leisure time. Far from it. We must be doing something. We must be working. We must be laboring and doing it with all our might, indulging in a little honest sweat and knowing what it is to go to bed tired out, feeling that we have lived like a man and not as a sluggard, not as a parasite, building ourselves up on somebody else's capital and taking of the sustenance and strength of another. Labor, says the apostle, working with your own hands that which is good. And by the way, I'll just mention this in passing. In Paul's command to stop stealing and to do honest work, we have the criteria to guide us in our job selection. Okay? Honest work is work that contributes positively to society. There are a lot of jobs you can get that don't contribute in that fashion to society. They do more damage to society than they will ever do good. And by the way, this is in squares directly with Paul saying about our speech, that our speech should always be used to build others up. So our work should be used to build others up, to contribute positively. And our speech should be used to build others up and to contribute positively to the life of another. So first, Paul commands us to be a giver. And we can be a giver through hard work. Second, Paul teaches us to be a builder. Be a builder. Look at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. You know what Paul's addressing here in verse 29? The power of words. The power of words. <coughs> Excuse me. I said last week, that anger is a very common source of sin. Well, here's another very common source of sin. Our speech, our words, the words that we speak. And because it is such a common source of sin, the Bible has much to say about our tongue. The Bible has much to say about our speech. Let me, if you have your Bibles handy, go to James chapter 3. And let's read the first 10 verses together. If you take the time and really pay attention to what James is, see, is saying here, he really makes some remarkable statements that, again, divorced from the gospel, 
leaves us in a helpless position. But through the power of the gospel, we see what is possible. James chapter 3, verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. Now, underline this verse in my notes here. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. You met that guy lately? Able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they, though they, are, no, they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a force is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining, notice this, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. Now think, think what James is saying here. We know we can go to the circus and we see supposedly tame lions or grizzly bears or other, any other kind of animal. We have the ability as mankind to bring them into subjection. But he goes on to say, but no human being can tame the tongue. I'm not an outdoorsman and have very little desire to be so because of things like grizzly bears. I can't tame a I, 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 there, The potential is there that I could tame the grizzly bear, but you know what I can't tame? My tongue. My tongue. And the grizzly bear probably has about 15 or 2,000 pounds on my tongue. You see how powerful the tongue is? James says, it's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. And again, I go back to that, but no human being can tame the tongue. And again, apart from the gospel, you know what that says? Strike three, you're out, over, done. So how is the tongue tamed? By the power of the gospel, by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And it is clear from Scripture and from our own personal experience that we need a lot of help to make sure that our words, both how we say them and what we say, are building others up and not tearing them down. That old uh, rhyme, sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but words will never hurt me, is a lie. Words do hurt. <coughs> and perhaps, listen carefully, there is no better barometer of our spiritual condition than our tongues. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I want to do incredible work through the power of the Holy Spirit on my own heart so that one day, if it's the Lord's will that I may suffer with Alzheimer's, I want the words that come out of my mouth at that time to be, still be pleasing to the Lord. 
See, while I'm in control of my faculties, I can control what I'm saying. But when I lose control, guess what? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Once again, by the way, many times we give ourselves away by the words that we say. So Paul follows his familiar pattern here. He shows the negative and then the positive. What's the negative? Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Corrupting talk. It's translated in other versions as unwholesome. It means rotten fruit. It means putrid speech. Again, our words have the potential to do great harm to others. Corrupting talk. Our speech can have a corrupting effect on others. Think about the book of Proverbs. It's all about what is being said. A wise father to his son. A wicked woman to a simpleton. Proverbs chapter 5. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech, notice that, her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And how does she lure the young man in? Through her words. Our words have the power to destroy, and they also have the power to build up. And one of the identifying marks of the Christian is our speech. Our speech is to be completely different from the speech of the world. Completely. The world we live in is characterized by what? Have you ever heard so much foul language as you hear today? It doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Whether it's in a song, in a movie, in a book. Foul language. Just assaulted by it all the time. There are people now at all levels of society who they're characterized by coarse and profane language. I've been told, though I've never met the man, so take this with a grain of salt, I've been told that Jamie Dimon, the CEO of Chase, has a foul mouth. We know our politicians engage in profane ways of speaking. Again, books and movies are filled with it. Sadly, some who refer to themselves as pastors bring gutter talk into the pulpit. The pulpit is to be a holy place, not a profane place. But Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Now, corrupting thoughts may come into our minds because our minds are being assaulted all the time. But as a Christian, we are to take every thought captive, what's the Bible say? To obedience to Christ. So Paul commands us that when corrupting thoughts begin to be formed into words, we stop them there. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, kill them, murder them, don't let them escape, show them no mercy, put them to death. So we must react swiftly and strongly 
to make sure that we stop all corrupting talk before we utter even one syllable. That old adage that it's good to think before you speak is so true. So true. Now, how about this? Say, so you say that our speech gives us away. Give me an example, all right? I got, a, I think, a good one. How do you know a person is negative? Do they wear a sticker across their forehead, say, hi, I'm negative now? No. You know how you know a person is negative? Just listen to them talk. That's all you got to do. You don't have to be around them very long. The negative person reveals the condition of their heart by their negativity. There are some people who rarely, if ever, have anything positive to say. They are like a big, dark rain cloud just waiting to release, uh, release their icy cold water on everybody who's within hearing distance. That's what a negative person's like. <coughs> the negative person is only concerned with tearing down, not building others up. And by the way, they tear themselves down. And if you profess to be a believer, your speech should have a positive tone to it. Now, holidays are coming. You may be looking forward to that with a great anticipation or great dread. I don't know. But let's say that you have a negative family member who professes to be a believer. Now, listen closely. You can help them if you will hold them up to the mirror of Scripture so they can clearly see who they are. And perhaps the Holy Spirit will use that to show them that they are not a believer. If a person is constantly negative, we know they have a heart problem. There is a problem that must be dealt with. Perhaps they are a believer who is untaught or strongly disobedient, but the possibility may exist they're not a believer at all. And your talk as a believer is to be talked with a purpose. And I don't have time to develop this this week, so I'm going to do, deal with it next week, I believe. And as I, I keep reading this passage, I just keep thinking to myself how practical Paul's words are. We live in a culture of talk, right? We have talk radio. We have news cycles 24-7, 365 uh, uh, days a year. We have sports pundits who espouse their views Nonstop. We have the political pundits filling our airwaves round the clock. And that old song has never been more true than it is today. You talk too much. You talk too much. Too much talk that has no purpose to it. I remember years ago hearing Rick Warren, and I'm not endorsing anything about Rick Warren, but I thought this was apropos. He said, every Sunday... Millions of words are spoken from pulpits that have absolutely no purpose. And I'm afraid he's right. Okay. Much of what is said today is pointless, it's purposeless. How about this? Much of what is said today is not for building others up, but for building ourselves up. Right? So your words as a Christian are to be spoken with a purpose. Say, well, what's the purpose? To build others up. 
And now, what do you think of when you think of that phrase building up? I think in terms of construction. So our words are to help build others up, to help them make progress on their journey of sanctification to becoming like Christ. That's what my words should do for them. MacArthur says our speech should build, should build up by being helpful, constructive, instructive, and uplifting. Review, mentally review, the last five conversations you had. Did they build others up? Or were they full of corrupting talk? And in order to build others up, we must choose our words carefully. We must use wisdom. So here's your assignment for this week. To make sure you're not stealing from God. Make sure you're not stealing from your neighbor. Make sure you're not stealing from your employer. Make sure that you're not stealing from yourself. To make sure that you think before you speak. That may be new territory for some of us, but good territory. To monitor the words that you are forming in your mind and if they are not going to build others up put them to death before they are spoken do you see how helpful this is for us as Christians I doubt that there's somebody in the room who the last few weeks killed somebody or embezzled from their employer, was brokering drug deals on the streets of Berea. And because we're not engaged in that kind of activity, we can lull ourselves to a sense of complacency that everything's okay with us, that we're doing pretty well until we come to a passage like this. And we see that, man, there are ways that we are guilty of stealing, that there are ways that we are expressing unrighteous, sinful anger, that there are ways that we talk with one another that aren't building them up, that are actually tearing them down. Then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit uses that to say, hey, we have some work to do, but I'm going to help you do it. Say, why is all this important? Well, in the context of the church, it will help us maintain the unity of the Holy Spirit. I hope when you come to church on Sunday mornings, I've said several times, use your spiritual gift to do what? To build others up. So when you come to church on Sunday morning, you are looking, actively looking for the opportunity to build each other up with what you say. Now, there are times when you have to address things that some may consider to be negative, but actually you're building them up through that negative instruction. We do that as parents all the time. Okay. 
So it will help us maintain the unity of the Spirit. And it will keep us from grieving the Holy Spirit. What do we see in verse 30? Well, let's pray. Father, I'm not ashamed to admit that I've been convicted. And, I'm, and honestly, Father, I, I'm glad that you have shown me that there are areas of my life that I'm, that I'm sinning in. That, I, that, I've, that I've been guilty of some of these things. No, I've not robbed a bank. I've, I've not shot anybody. I haven't done the things that we consider to be the big sins of the sinner. But Father, I'm not so sure that my speech is always helpful. I'm not so sure that my anger is always righteous anger. In fact, I know it's not. I'm not sure, Father, as painful as this is to admit, that I give you my best every day. But Father, even while I'm convicted, I'm encouraged. Because I said last week, Paul would not have included this passage if it weren't for our good. If it wasn't to help us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We ask all these things in your precious, holy, powerful name. Amen.